got a quick question for you. I'm wondering how many of you desire to be closer to Jesus? Okay. That's good. I didn't even ask for a raising of hands. You guys like testify. I'm wondering how many of you, as you think about your life, you long to be led by the, the Holy Spirit in such a way that you feel like you're just in lockstep with Christ. Well, let me ask you this. As you think about that kind of life and that kind of experience, I'm wondering what kind of experience you think that would be. In other words, what would it feel like if you were actually walking in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, if you were growing closer to Jesus? Would you expect maybe your non-Christian friends to immediately respond to the gospel with faith, if you were just walking in lockstep with the Spirit, if you were close as you could be to Christ, would you get a promotion at work? Would you be healed of your sickness? Would a protective orb just kind of spontaneously develop around you such that no troubles were able to penetrate and get into your life? Well, if you're like me, you can subtly slip into a kind of triumphalism, that kind of thought that believes that more faithfulness means less troubles. See, triumphalism is a kind of over-realized eschatology. That means that you have this idea that all of those promises for the last day can be experienced and grasped today in the here and now, that, that everything that is to come should be here. We shouldn't have to wait for it. So we deserve better health better houses, and, and better presidential candidates, right? But the troubles of this life can also trouble our hearts. And what would Jesus say to us amidst our troubled lives? If we were close to him, does he, does he care? Have you ever started to ask that question amidst your troubles? These are great troubles. Does God care? Does Jesus care about me? Well, this morning we'll see that Jesus actually brings comfort to the troubled hearts of his disciples. Jesus says, I care about your hearts. It's a great and encouraging message, the kind of message that ought to, to really swoop in and save those who are sick and, and wondering if Jesus cares, or those who are on their dying beds and wondering if Jesus is there. Uh, here we see a voice of Jesus that says, I care not just about your troubles, but your troubled hearts. Now we're back in the series on Jesus' seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, with Jesus encouraging his disciples not to be troubled in heart. Right before declaring in John 14, 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That statement that we're going to be looking at today, but to get there, we need to spend a lot of time in the verses immediately preceding it. Now, speaking of troubles, a dramatic shift is taking place in the Gospel of John in chapters 13 to 17. You'll remember that he was doing signs and wonders, and Jerusalem rejected them, and it continued to cause division between those who seemed to believe and those who didn't. But as he hits chapter 13, which is known as the upper room discourse, Jesus is running to the cross. In fact, this is the day before Jesus will lay down his life for his people. Now, this section that we are looking at uh, this morning is within chapters 13 to 17. It's, it's a kind of farewell discourse, if you're thinking of genres. It is Jesus speaking words to his disciples about his eventual leaving them. He's preparing them for his death. Now, John 13 
timestamps this section as just before the Passover, that annual Jewish celebration of God where he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt after that climactic sign, you'll remember in Exodus, where he killed all of the firstborn of Egypt who did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Those who did have it were told that the Spirit passed by and let them live. That is the Passover that they were celebrating. They celebrated it with sacrifices. Of course, we know in John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus at the beginning of this gospel, and he announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus would die on a cross as a sacrificial lamb for his people. He would be raised from the dead to redeem and ransom God's people. But Jesus just celebrated the Last Supper in John 13. He's there with the disciples. It was then that Judas left and he arranged the arrest and eventual crucifixion of Christ. The the disciples hardly understand the troubles that are coming their way. I mean, if they think they're troubled by being confused about what Jesus is saying about leaving them, they don't even have an idea of what's about to hit. Well, it's Thursday. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to send, it's going to send all of the disciples scattering for their lives and emotionally trying to understand what, what has just happened. See, Peter overestimates his ability to face trouble with Jesus. You'll remember that just in the section in John 13 preceding this. Jesus tells his disciples they can't follow him. And here's Peter again who's like, not me, I can do it. Jesus, I, put me up to bed, I'm ready. And Peter says, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus immediately looks at Peter and he says, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. I love Don Carson's comment here on Peter. It's a comment that might be true of all of us at some moment or many moments in our lives. He says, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. Is that you? I think that's me. Super faithful, super believing, small things make me crumble to the ground. Small troubles. The troubles of this life will temper our heart's triumphalism, won't they? So if you're troubled this morning, or if you are going to be troubled soon, that could happen. Or maybe if you just know somebody who is or might be troubled, this is a message for you. Now our big idea as we come into this, we are listening to Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 1-7. And I believe they are a heavenly healing balm for troubled and hurting souls. Our big idea is this, that Jesus calms troubled hearts with the promise that he will bring them all the way home to God. This is a great promise. Jesus is coming in. He's encouraging troubled hearts. He says, trust me, I'm going to bring your troubled hearts. I'm going to bring you all the way home to God. You can believe that. Now, first... Our big, our big idea, our first point to, uh, to, to prove that is this. Our troubled Savior comforts troubled hearts in verse 1a. Our troubled Savior comforts troubled hearts. Let's not rush over Jesus' words to his disciples. In that first part of John 14.1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus will repeat this in verse 27 where he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now up to this point, Jesus has literally been troubled of soul. You'll remember this if you've been tracking. Remember the sight of Mary weeping over the dead body of his beloved friend Lazarus in John eleven thirty-three. 
It caused Jesus to be deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in John 12, 27, Jesus is approaching the cross to die for his people. And Jesus said in that moment, now is my soul troubled. And then in John 12, 27, as Jesus is, uh, after he has approached uh, the cross, uh, we go on to find in John 13, 21, that he is speaking of Judas, who is about to betray him. And John records, Jesus was in this moment troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus has been troubled. But here, in John 14, 1, our troubled Savior, Jesus, comforts his troubled disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. They are not troubled over the coming crucifixion as much as fears of what Jesus means by departing them. Jesus is leaving and they think, what are we to do? Well, Jesus did just tell Peter that he would deny him three times. I'm guessing that Peter was probably troubled that Jesus had such a low estimation of him. Others were wondering what it meant that They've been following Jesus for three years. They've left their lives. They've sacrificed so much. And he's about to go away from them? I mean, just consider the heart of Christ on display in this moment, though. His troubles certainly trump our troubles. Do you get me? If you understand Jesus and what he came to do and to accomplish, his troubles trump our small troubles. Even our great troubles are small before the magnitude of the wrath of God. And yet his troubles are on account of our troubles. He stepped into our troubles. He had infinite joy and perfect relationship with the Father and the Son from heaven's past eternity. And yet here he leaves that to step into and enter into our troubles with us. Yet even on the eve of his crucifixion, as he faces down the wrath of God, Jesus is concerned with his disciples' troubled hearts. Do you see the beauty of the heart of Christ in this? We know Jesus has his sufferings in full view. The hour has arrived. Jesus has just told G Judas in John 13, 27, what you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, I know what you're going to do. You're going to sell me out to the Jews and to the Romans to be crucified publicly. And as Jesus stares wide-eyed at the cross and God's wrath in his most troubled moment, he shows pity to his disciples. See, Jesus shows us what his heart is like. Isn't this glorious? I have a question for you as a Christian. I'm just wondering, what is your response when you are going through troubles? When you're troubled over your marriage or your lack of a marriage? or your bills that you cannot pay, or unfulfilled dreams, or unsaved family, or friends, or painful injuries, chronic illness. You know troubles. We all, if we are a human, experience troubles. And you begin to ask questions like, why God? Don't you care? Don't you see what's happening? Can't you help me? Aren't you able? And maybe you think you were too insignificant in those moments for God to see. Has anybody felt that way? But don't miss this. Our troubled Savior sees the hearts of his troubled people and he cares. I quoted from Benjamin Warfield his work, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, last week. And it's a beautiful work in it. He talks about the fact that throughout the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, 
Compassion is the motion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus. He is a compassionate Savior. He says the divine mercy has been defined as that essential perfection in God whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. It includes two parts, this mercy, an internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence. See, compassion speaks of that internal movement of pity that happens within Christ. And it's used all over the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But, but John, he doesn't speak of compassion much at all. John speaks instead of love. Warfield explains why that is. He says Jesus' prime characteristic in the Gospel of John was love. And love is the foundation of compassion. And the love of Jesus is often the love of benevolence, a love that propels Jesus to come to the aid of humanity in his sin and his misery. Not the same thing all the time. See, Jesus is propelled through his heart of compassion and love to reach down and to care for his children. That's the heart of Christ. So Christian, don't miss this. Jesus didn't promise to free you from the many troubles of this life today. He did promise that he's going to do it someday. A day's coming when you will be freed from all of the troubles of this life. In fact, in John 16, Jesus actually promised this. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the love of Jesus propelled him to the cross for you. He doesn't love you less after the resurrection. That's not a lesser love that we experience now than what they experienced then. No, Jesus loves his people, cares for his people, is propelled to come and love his people. Think about this. On Jesus' worst night, with the cross in full view, Jesus' heart was swelling with loving compassion for his people, not wanting them to be troubled. I mean, this is a unique view into the heart of Christ for us. But where does Jesus point his disciples when their hearts are troubled? Uh, notice, second, faith in Christ is the cure for a troubled heart. We see that in the second part of this verse. Notice, the cure that he prescribes for the troubled hearts of his disciples is faith in verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, believe comes from the same Greek word for faith. So, he's saying, put your faith in me. It's an action that's happening. Now, this could be taken in a number of ways. Believe in God, believe in me. Don Carson highlights some of them. He says it could mean you trust in God, statement of fact, trust in me, or trust in Christ. It could mean you trust in God, trust also in me. So, a statement of fact and then a command. Or it could mean trust in God, a command, trust also in me, another command. I think that's the normal way that it's tra translated and likely the best. But any way that you look at it, Jesus here is making this bold declaration, saying that if you believe in God, if you truly have faith in God, you must also believe in me. Make me the object of your faith. Trust that I can keep my promises. See, Jesus has shown that he performs signs up to this point that only God could. He speaks with God-like authority, such that others want to stone him for blasphemy. And yet here we find that Jesus is coming in 
And he is saying that I am the right object of your faith. See, faith in Jesus calms our troubled hearts. The more that we trust him with our futures, with our identity, with our reality, the more that the troubles that invade from outside are, able, are unable to actually cause trouble to us. See, trust, Jesus says, trust that I can keep my promises. This is different than the message of the world. Message of the world isn't trust in God so that you can have more peace. In fact, uh, there's a new song out by Justin Bieber, a professed Christian, uh, called Holy. And in it, Chance the Rapper comes in and he says, I know we believe in God and I know God believes in us. As though that's to bring us some kind of confidence that God believes and, I guess, trusts in us. And I think that's really the message of the world. Believe in yourself. And if you really believe in yourself really good, then you're not going to be distracted and troubled by all the haters out there. I haven't found the verse to back up Chance the Rapper that God believes in us. I found many verses about God's love for us. Boy, I'd rather have his love than his trust because I don't even trust myself at times. And his command that we believe in and trust him is everywhere. And that we believe in his word and trust his word and his son, that's everywhere. See, that's the sure and steady anchor of troubled souls. It's to trust in God. Here's where J.C. Ryle comes in and he comments, Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of his disciples. Trust me. Speaking to God, Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah 26.3 prior to Christ. He says, and this is Isaiah speaking to God. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And if you trust him, then he will keep peace within you. Of course, faith with legs looks like trusting and obeying God's word, doesn't it? And so peace is a gift of the Spirit to those who trust in God and trust his Son, Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning, the reason that you're struggling with a troubled heart it's because you need to trust in God more. You need to put your faith in Him more. You need to ask for the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace that only comes from Him more. See, Jesus is not only the object of our faith in God, but He's also the model of trusting God. Did you know that? See, Jesus is the object of our faith, but here we need to also be reminded that Jesus is also the example of what true faith being lived out looks like. See, Jesus was the greatest believer that ever lived. You might say, but wait a minute, he's a God-man, so how can he have faith? One of the Westminster divines, or divines, Thomas Goodwin, said, Jesus' faith was the highest instance of believing that there ever was. He believed better than any of us. He believed, in a sense, for us who would follow and put our faith in Christ. He believed that God would justify him based on his perfect, sinless works. He trusted God in this. When the whole world was chaos, he trusted the word of God. He did not need a mediator or an advocate. Jesus was perfect. Jesus had a perfect faith and a perfect life. And as Jesus was troubled, going to the cross, he trusted God that his suffering would lead to God's glory and the salvation of many. He trusted God. He taught us that we ought to trust God amidst our troubles. 
in this way. But Jesus is not merely the example of our faith. He is the object of our faith. In other words, we don't believe God, we don't believe God to justify us based on our own works. Now that was Jesus. Only he is like that. But instead, we believe in God and also in his son, Jesus Christ, who is mercy to us, who is God's compassion to us. We believe that it's through his perfect life and death that we will be justified, not because of what we had done, but because of what Christ has done. So Christian, when you find your heart beleaguered by troubles, believe like Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Seek God's word. Pray to the Father for help with Christ as your advocate when you sin. Press into a local church, a community of faith, where we are to encourage you to look towards Christ. Obey God's word. Faithfulness begets faithfulness. Trust not only that Jesus cares, but that he brings help and peace to your heart amidst the tribulations of this life as we look to that great day when faith becomes sight. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I just have a question for you this morning. What is your hope amidst troubles? What is the end of this game we call life? Is it that there is hardship and more hardship and some people's lives are better than others and then we die and it's over? Is it that there's no justification or meaning or purpose for the troubles of this life? When you find yourself at the bottom of the alleyways of this life, when you find troubles coming in from every direction, and they will come, do you think to yourself, there is nobody who's coming for me? Hear this. The beautiful message of the gospel is that Jesus comes for his people. There is no alleyway so deep that he doesn't come running to care for the hearts of those who love him. You know, you can become part of this. We'll talk about that later, but... Here I ask, why should the disciples not be troubled by Jesus' departure? Well, it's because it's for their good in verses 2 to 4. Did you see that? Did you notice that Jesus doesn't aim directly at their troubles in this moment? It's really interesting. Sometimes he aims directly at the troubles that bother them. Like Mark 4, they see this great storm. They're terrified. Jesus stops the storm. Then they're really terrified. But here, Jesus actually aims in a different way. Notice, he says, third, I'm making a way for you to get to the Father. That's where I'm going. See, the encouragement seems to be heavenly. Now, much will happen both in the near and the far term for all Christians as we await the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. But hopes of heaven should calm our fears. Jesus said this. I know there are a number of songs about heavens that focus on mansions from this verse Verse 14, 2. In fact, I grew up singing this old song by Eliza Hewitt called When We All Get to Heaven. Sang it all the time in church. It begins, sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing of his mercy and grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. Now, the KJV, the King James Version, it follows the Latin Vulgate. If you don't know what those are, then you can tune out and then tune back in right now. And it translates John 14, 2 as, In my Father's house there are many mansions. But the Greek here speaks of a dwelling place that can mean a number of different things. And it seems to make sense that it begins, In my Father's house, that it makes more sense to translate this, There are many rooms, not mansions. I know some of you are thinking, Man, I went to church this morning. And I lost the mansion I'd been banking on in heaven. And I wasn't in trouble before, but now i got troubles. 
But let me just help you think about this in a good way. Would you rather be in a mansion in the kingdom of God or in the house of your heavenly father? You know, the benefits of living in the house with your father are much greater than living in the same neighborhood, right? So here he's brought us nearer and dearer to him as adopted children with full access to God. Now let's look at verses 2 to 3 and what they say. Here we go. He says this, In my father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, <clears throat> that where I am with you may also be. Now, commentator Andreas Kostenberger here says, it was customary in Jesus' day that when you would have a dwelling place, that you would form kind of extended households that would be connected together, and sons would add their father's house, once married, uh, they would add rooms to it, and turning this entire estate to a kind of large compound that centered around a communal courtyard. Uh, Benjamin, Johnny, Jack, that's what I'm hoping we have in the future. Now, listeners may have imagined the luxurious Herodian palaces that were in Jerusalem and Tiberias and Jericho that, that would have pointed them to this hope of a heavenly future dwelling that would surpass even the great kings of this world. But what is clear here is that we know that there are many rooms, and that meant plenty of room for all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, no one who repents and believes gets left out. And no one gets stuck in the Motel 8 for overflow, right? Been there. Now, God's family lives with God in God's house. And Jesus assures his people that that's why he has to go where he has to go. He has to prepare a place for them. He must go to the cross to make a way for them. But notice that Jesus here promises to return to take him to himself so they can be where he is in verse 3. Now, what does it mean that he's going to return? This is used in different ways in the New Testament, the return of Christ. Uh, sometimes uh, it's used, and some understand it to mean that Jesus is returning to his disciples after the resurrection. You'll remember that that was one return. Uh, some use it to say that Jesus was coming to his disciples by the Spirit after his ascension. There's a sense in which the Spirit of Christ is with them. And then third, others see this as Jesus' second coming at the end of the age. Some even see it as all three. It's meant to be intentionally vague. But I believe that the second coming is what's in view. This is where Jesus promises to take up believers with him, and that's most likely what he's talking about. And then notice my father's house. It speaks of heaven, where God has rooms for each of his people. And did you notice that Jesus assumes that heaven already exists as a place where he's going? So the, the preparation of a place seems to entail the work of the cross and resurrection that prepares a place for God's people to experience the fullness of God's presence in peace. Anybody long for that day? That's what Jesus had to do through the cross and the resurrection. Now along these lines, Paul says something very similar in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. He envisions this day and Paul says, on that day the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
which are at least that Jesus is coming back to get you. See, Jesus tells his people to trust him even after he departs as, the, as they wait the fulfillment of his promise to bring them to himself. As we wait on Jesus to return today, we are still told to trust Jesus amidst our many troubles. And right now, I'm sure that there are way more troubles that are on us than there are people in this room. And I want you to know that Jesus' words are still good to you today. Jesus has a plan and a future and a hope for you. And he wants you to trust in the truths that are found here. Let me just give you some. He wants you today to trust. Trust Jesus that he had to go to the cross to prepare a place for you to live with your Father forever. He he had to do it. He had to make a way where there was no way. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven where he is now mediating relationship between you and the Father. He is there for you, but he had to do it to make a way where there was no way. Trust, Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and strength for those who are in Christ. He is a very present help in trouble. This tells us of the Father's love for us as well because Jesus images the Father. We'll see in verse 7, to see him is to see the Father. Did you know that this tells us something about God the Father's heart from you for you? Love what Puritan John Flavel wrote here. He said, remember that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. That's God's heart for you. Uh, also trust that faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you will not have uh, troubles and tribulations in this life. Jesus told us that. You you will have troubles. You can have great faith and great troubles simultaneously. Just look at Jesus Christ who went to the cross trusting God fully. Trust that Jesus' promises, and he promises that these light and momentary afflictions that feel so heavy, so unending, will cease and give way to a flood of eternal joy and peace. Things aren't right, but our future is incredibly bright. Trust that Jesus wants us with him forever. Isn't that glorious? Jesus wants you with him. Trust Jesus' voice about the, above the competing voices of your troubled hearts. Your troubles, as they come, lies come in, and we have to preach the truth of the gospel to those lies. We need to trust Christ's promise that today we will have troubles in this world, but that one day, on the last day, we will experience shalom in God's home, right? Some of you today, I'm sure, are here, and you're thinking, you don't know the troubles that I'm facing. I know there's nothing new under the sun, but man, there's some art to what I'm facing. And you're thinking it never ends, and it's too hard to bear. And Jesus says, I'm with you in this. I've carried this for you, and there's a coming day when you will experience the thing that your heart and every human heart truly longs for, that is shalom or peace in the home with God forevermore. That's a day that you cannot even imagine or fathom. The thing that is taunting you right now, that is terrorizing you right now, is the promise of the thing that you fear might not be true, but I'm telling you today that it is true. I've paid the price at the cross so that you might be with God in peace forever. So the peace that we experience in our hearts will one day break out into heaven and earth for all of those that trust Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now here, 
we find Thomas entering the room yet again. Good old Thomas, doubting Thomas. Thomas who, when he's with Jesus in chapter 11 to go visit Lazarus, says, well, I guess we're going to die because they said they're going to kill us and we're going and so therefore we die. Thomas doesn't like metaphors. You almost wonder if Jesus, in this statement, as Thomas comes in, has overestimated his disciples because of what Thomas says in verses 5 to 7. Jesus says, and you know the way. And Thomas looks at Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God-man, and he says, we don't know the way. You almost expect Jesus to say, I know you better than you know yourself, but he doesn't. Notice what happens fourth. Jesus says instead, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says this in verses 5 to 7. Now, Thomas has already said, let's go and die with Jesus in verse 11, in chapter 11. And here in chapter 14, here comes Thomas speaking again. And Thomas looks everywhere like a literalist. But here Thomas says, Lord, how can we know the way if we don't even know the destination? Makes sense, right? Like, hey, um, I want you to meet me at 6 o'clock. Okay? What are you going to ask for first? The way or the destination? Usually the destination. And then like we can work out the way and there are lots of ways. But Jesus says, no, the the way and the destination, they're they're in me. Notice what he says in verses 5 to 7. This is how it falls out. He says this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we did not know where you were going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now you'll notice that the way, it's repeated three times in verses 4 to 6. In verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to the Father. In verse 5, Thomas says, we don't know the way to the Father. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, yes, you do. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now some say that that and that connects, that connects way, truth, and life, the way and the truth and the life, it's actually meant to sort of connect them into one thing so that it says something like uh, the true and living way or the true way of life. I don't think John's language supports that, but it does seem like the way here is being emphasized as a kind of control over the truth and the life. It, it seems that, that that way being repeated is saying that way is the main thing that they're asking about. Now, Craig Keener, in his commentary, says truth and life merely clarify the way. Don Carson calls the way the head turn. He explains Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. So Jesus is the truth in that he reflects God's supreme revelation of himself to humanity. Jesus is also the life as the only one who has life in himself, and he is the resurrection and the life, as we saw in John chapter 11. Only because Jesus is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. The way for his disciples to attain the many dwelling places in his Father's house in heaven, thus answering Thomas's original question. You know, we don't know the way, but here Jesus says, no, I, I have made a way and I am the way. In other words, Jesus did not just come as a trailblazer, making a way for us to follow by example his steps. Jesus is not the trailblazer, he's the trail. He is the one who came to actually be the way. There's no way to him and to the Father except through him. 
See, Jesus is more than the way maker, as the popular song says. He is the way. He made a way where there was no way by sending Jesus, who was and is the way to God. But don't miss this. Jesus isn't just a teacher or a guru modeling how to live such that one day you'll end up in heaven. Just follow these sort of like legalistic or moral applications of life, and in the end, it'll all work out for you and everybody else. He's not merely a prophet like Muhammad or Joseph Smith who tells you how to get to God. If you follow these instructions, you'll get there. No, Jesus is very God, truly God. In fact, verse 7 says, to know Jesus is to know the Father. And if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father because he is the exact image of the invisible God. Jesus is truly God and the truest man who has ever lived. So Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect life of perfect trust and faith in God amidst every tribulation, including the cross, and, and taking on God's wrath for us, qualified him to be a sacrifice that could bring us peace with God. The peace that we long for in our troubles is only brought to us through the gospel. See, his life of perfect faithful obedience made him an acceptable, sacrificial Passover lamb who died to get us all the way to God. Just hear me. You do not get to God because Jesus took 99 steps and you just take the one. The message of grace is the message of a gift that has been given 100% to you to receive and glory in, not to make much of yourself in. Jesus didn't say like, you know, hey, um, I'm glad that you believe in me 99% and I've got 1% directing your way, cat. It's not the way that faith works. It is a gift of God. His life of perfect obedience is what brought us to Jesus, that brought us to the Father. In fact, early Christians so identified Jesus with the way. This was such a message of hope that it became a kind of code languages for those following Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you'll remember in Acts chapter 9, Saul, before he becomes Paul, right? As he is on his way to persecute Christians, we find that he says that he is looking for those who are following what? The way. Those are followers of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Christian, I want you to know this morning that Jesus is still the only way to God. Is your only mediator. He's the only way to God. You only ever go to God through His Son. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel didn't just get you in. It's the gospel that continues to give you living, vibrant, better relationship with the Lord. That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. And Christian, did you know that in Christ we are invited now to bring the troubles of our hearts to God in Christ? Now just think about this. You are full of troubles. You are wondering if God cares. Well, Hebrews speaks to this. In Hebrews 4.16, the, the pastor speaks to his church and he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Did you hear that? Confidence. The throne of what? God's grace. That, here's the purpose, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's compassion stands ready to be lavished on us in Christ as we come boldly before his throne. Not only that, Christian, be reminded in Revelations 22, 3-5, we are told that Jesus is the way not only now, but forevermore, such that John tells us that when we get to heaven, 
When heaven comes down to us, the centerpiece of that is going to be a throne where God the Father and the Lamb are enthroned forever. Meaning that we will never forget the identity and reality of Jesus as a lamb for us, a sacrificial lamb who died to open the way where there was no way that we might be in the presence of God forever. And how will we know that? Because we're there with him forever, looking at the reality that he created through the cross. Revelations 22, 3 to 5. Apostle John, same that wrote the Gospel of John, says this. In the new heavens and the new earth, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be no more. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need not light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's our future. That's our hope. That's the thing that silences troubled hearts. The future is incredibly bright. Trinity, let me just encourage us as a church. We have a king who came to bring peace to us, peace to our hearts, but we also should be a people of peace. Let's fight for peace in our congregation, in our relationships with others. Let's be a people of reconciliation, seeking peace with all men. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. You know, we all have troubles, but we, like Jesus, are called to show compassion to others who are troubled. I'm just wondering, think about your life right now. Are you so consumed with your troubles that you've become blinded to the troubles of others? And I know I've done that at times. Overwhelming troubles blind me to the troubles of others. And I just kind of become so self-absorbed in that. And there are those around you that are opening up an opportunity for you to look like Jesus. Who as he faced the wrath of God, stooped down in concern for his beloved brothers and sisters who he would die for, make a way for. So that he might actually bring them all the way to God and experience the peace of God. You know, that's a mission that God invites us into as the people of God. And I hope that our church is known as that, as a church of peace. And if you're a non-Christian, don't miss this. You are already on your way somewhere. You might be like Thomas and you're like, I don't even know the destination. And yet in this moment, what we find is that Jesus tells us not only the destination, but the way. And the way is this, the destination is this. It is Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. He is the one who came to die to make a way for you to be with God. Those troubles that you experience in this life, you're like, I just wish I could get free from. They are pointing you to a great day that's coming that is going to be glory and beauty and joy forevermore for those who are in Christ. It is wrath and misery forevermore for those who are outside of Christ. There is one way to the Father, that's through Jesus the Son. And if you haven't put your faith in Him, today is a great day to believe on Christ. Don't leave without talking to me about this. We can put pulse on hold if we need to so you can come to Jesus. Let's take some time now and go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare uh, for our meeting after the service. Let's pray together. We're going to sing. Those who are going to be leading us in music are going to be coming forward, but let's pray together.